Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. The fact of the matter is calling out and identifying false teachers is neither fun nor is it popular. But it is necessary and it's absolutely essential. And the fact of the matter is there are a lot of naive Christians out there who are very susceptible to wolves uh, in sheep's clothing. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Jesus. And so in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where I want you to turn, you have the theme, test the spirits, because they are not all from God. These words are very similar to what John penned earlier in this first letter in chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. If you've ever studied the letter of 1 John, it's very much like a spiral, and he comes back around again and again and again to the same subject, uh, very concerned about right belief, uh, very much concerned about our obedience, and very much concerned that we love well, and sometimes loving well. Uh, means we expose those who are dangerous uh, to the flock of God, to those who are dangerous to the sheep. And so in this particular passage, uh, the last living apostle, uh, one who was an eyewitness of all that Jesus did in his public ministry, draws contrast, striking contrast between uh, true prophets and false prophets, between the true Christ and the spirit of the Antichrist between what he identifies as the Spirit of God and what he identifies as the Spirit of this world. In fact, six times he will use the phrase from God and six times he will use the phrase the world. And what he is really concerned about is the fact that those who are of the world have somehow worked and wormed their way into the local church. It is again a reminder that our greatest enemies are never from without. Our greatest enemies and our greatest danger is always from within. Therefore, John tells us there in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And so what I want to do this morning in the time that we have is put before you four tests in the form of four questions that will allow us to discern whether or not this spirit is from God or the Spirit is from some other source. And I know that we're about to move into exam week, but let me tell you something. The examination that this text provides is more crucial than any exam you'll ever take at any time in your life. This particular exam and the grade you receive, it has eternal consequences. So four questions that will allow us to rightly test the spirits. Number one, are you following false prophets? John begins with the word of affection as he often does, beloved, uh, agapetoi, dear friends. He deeply cares for these brothers and sisters in Christ and he's very much aware uh, that danger is lurking about and tragically it may have even worked its way within the fellowship. He wants them to be aware of the fact that not every spiritual teacher is a 
credible teacher. There are spiritual deceivers and liars out there. Sometimes they stand behind a pulpit. Sometimes they stand behind a Bible. Yes, they may be on TBN. Yes, they may have very wide-reaching podcasts. And they may claim to follow Christ. But, but John would say, test the spirits. Don't just believe them because they profess to be a spokesman for God. You've got a manual whereby you can check out everything that they say. It's called the Bible. And if what they say matches up with the Word of God, then they should be believed and you should embrace their teachings. But if it doesn't, then even though they may be claiming to be within the camp, they are wolves and they are in sheep's clothing. He says there, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. The word believe and the word test are both imperatives. They are words of command. He is commanding us to do this. Furthermore, they're in the present tense, which means we are to be in a constant vigilance of testing the spirits and not being easily deceived by those who may come into our fellowship. In fact, that word test carries the idea of a rigorous examination. You really look at it. You really examine it. You, you carefully analyze it to make sure it is genuine, that it is the, the real deal. Furthermore, the two phrases, do not believe and test, are in the plural. In other words, this is a community responsibility. This is one of the reasons I am a congregationalist. Nowhere in the Bible... Does it say that only the elders or the leaders are responsible for doctrinal integrity? It is the responsibility of the entire body of believers to be able to test the spirits and to know whether or not they are from God. For those of you that are pastors, are you training your people to be able to do this? Are they capable of standing on their own apart from you holding their hand because you have taught them well how to test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God? No, the fact of the matter is every believer is called to be a doctrinal detective. Every believer is called to be a theological investigator. John is very straightforward, isn't he? Behind every prophet... Behind every proclamation, there is what he would call an, an energizing spirit. And their message will inform us as to both their origin and also to their source. And they are not all from God. Therefore, we need to watch. We need to listen. We need to test. Hear me well now. At this point, uh, there is a legitimate place for what I would call spiritual skepticism. Indeed, it is necessary for the health and well-being of our Christian communities. And note what he says about these false prophets, these pseudo-prophetai there in verse 2. They are not from God. Indeed, many false prophets have what? Gone out into the world. John uses the word world in a number of different ways, but here I think he's clearly intimating that they are out there uh, everywhere. Uh, there's no place where false prophets are not located. There's no place where these deceivers do not go. In fact, in essence, they are satanic missionaries on assignment for the evil one. And you and I need to be reminded this morning, this is not new. Uh, sometimes we begin to fret and, and even whine that our situation is, is worse than any that has gone on before. And that's simply not true. Uh, false prophets, false teachers, liars and deceivers of biblical truth have been around for a long, 
long, long time. Moses spoke of them in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, and he spoke of them again in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22. Uh, Jesus spoke of them, Paul spoke of them, Peter spoke of them, Jude spoke of them, uh, John spoke of them. But listen in particular to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And and note where I emphasize three particular phrases. Paul writes to the Corinthians, "I, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. He's being sarcastic and ironic. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Did you hear what he spoke of? Another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. You know, the fact of the matter is most of us have a tendency to always ascribe to God any type of unusual or supernatural phenomenon. And yet if you read the Bible carefully, you recognize that the evil one also has at least the ability to fabricate miracles and to fabricate the supernatural. Remember this, religious activity, spiritual activity is not necessarily godly activity. And therefore, we watch and we wait. We look And we listen and we evaluate the message and the messenger always by the word of God. And again, we recognize as we have a mandate to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, we have a great commission. So these false teachers also have a great commission as well. Again, Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13. Paul spoke of it in Acts and in 2 Timothy. Peter spent an entire letter, 2 Peter 1, 2, and 3 speaking of this. Jude warns us as well. You cannot say, well, I just was not warned about the fact that error may be lurking even within the Christian community. No, we should be well informed and well prepared that false teaching is always just around the corner. Question number one, are you following false prophets? Second question, and perhaps the most important, are you confessing the true Jesus? Are you confessing the true Jesus? This is verse two and verse three. In his very fine book, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, Leslie Newbigin writes, and I quote, The gospel is news of what has happened. The problem of communicating it in a pluralistic society is that it simply disappears into the undifferentiated ocean of information. It represents one opinion among millions of others. It cannot be the truth. Since in a pluralistic society, truths is not one but many. It may be true for you. But it cannot be true for everyone. To claim that it is true for everyone is simply arrogance. 
It is permitted as one opinion among many. In verses 2 and 3, John once more makes it plain that the Christian faith stands or falls and is rooted in what I call the Christological question. What do you believe about Jesus? If he is just another enlightened religious teacher, he is permitted as one opinion, one option among many. However, if as John says it is true that he is the very incarnation of God, then this gospel and only this gospel is true. This gospel and only this gospel will save, and it is the only option of salvation among the millions of others that are falsely being offered. What John is saying is this, the the testing of the spirits is greatly aided by asking the Christological question that he does here in verse 2 and verse 3. Indeed, he says, by this you will know, uh, that you will recognize that you will come to understand the Spirit of God and those who bear his gospel message. Verse 2 puts the issue in a positive light. Verse 3 puts it in the negative. And what confession bears witness to the presence of the Spirit of God, it is simply this, and I'll add just a paraphrase word or two, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Messiah of God. He came in an abiding sense in the flesh. That is, he is the abiding incarnation of God. Note that this confession that you confess that he is the Christ is in the present tense. This is not some glib statement. Uh, This is not something that is just mere passing words. It is a heartfelt, mind-engaged, soul-committed confession that indeed is a confession of your life and a confession for a lifetime. John would basically say this, authentic Christianity either stands or falls on a true, genuine, and permanent wedding of deity and humanity in the one person, God's eternal Son, Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible teaches quite clearly that the Spirit of God always honors Jesus. It always honors the Son of God. Jesus himself said in John chapter 16 and verse 14, He, speaking of the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and he will declare it to you. And so if there's no glorifying Jesus as God incarnate, if there's no glorifying Jesus as our penal substitute, If there's no glorifying Jesus as the suffering servant of the Lord who bore in his body the full penalty of our sins, then the Spirit of God is not there. One of the things that Shia Lin was right in pointing out, the prosperity boys tend to draw more attention to themselves than they do to Christ. They draw more attention to the stuff that they believe he wants to allow you to accumulate than they do that he is indeed a suffering servant savior. They completely miss the model of life and model of ministry that you find depicted very clearly in the Bible concerning our savior. You know, it's amazing. You'd be well served this morning to study what demons have to say about Jesus in the gospels. 
In fact, let me clarify before you throw a rock at me for heresy. I wish all of you, at least at this point, had demon theology. So what do you mean by that? They always get it right about Jesus. Every single time. They know who he is. And every demonic confession in the four Gospels always nails it as to exactly who he is. You know, it's amazing. Some demons have a better Christology than some pastors and some theologians. The Bible says what you believe about Jesus will determine everything. And again, don't be upset that we live in a day where people find him uh, interesting. They find him attractive. They find him worthy, at least in part, of emulation. But they don't want to bow the knee and worship him as God incarnate. Nothing has changed in over 2,000 years. John wrote this book because he was dealing with exactly the same issues. In particular, he tells us there in verse 3 that there are those who do not confess that Jesus Jesus of Nazareth is from God. And he tells us very bluntly and directly, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. From your survey of the New Testament, you probably would recall quickly that he's confronting a a proto-Gnosticism, an incipient Gnosticism. Uh, By the way, that word doesn't begin with an N, it begins with a G. But the word gnosis means knowledge. And uh, they were a uh, developing sect that had a very exalted view of mystical knowledge, but a very low view of the body. And though it came in lots of uh, varieties, the bottom line for almost all of these Gnostic-type systems was that salvation comes by mystical knowledge, and secondly, the material world, matter, is evil. Now, of course, John was dealing with what we call docetism. That was a group of Gnostics that said that Jesus really wasn't flesh. He really wasn't incarnate. He only appeared to be. He was a phantom. Uh, He was a ghost. The word dokeo means to appear. And then there were the followers of uh, Serentheus, who was, by the way, active there in Ephesus. And basically, Serentheus had a, a, a very simplistic, adoptionistic Christology. He, he basically said this, the man Jesus was, was born, but at the baptism, the Christ Spirit came upon him and indwelt him for his years of public ministry. But at the cross... Uh, The Christ Spirit left him so that only the man Jesus was born and only the man Jesus died. And, of course, there was a denial of the virgin birth. After all, Jesus was conceived like anybody else was through sexual intercourse, probably from Joseph and from Mary. The fact of the matter is, J. Gratian Machen wrote a classic book early in the previous century on the virgin birth and actually said uh, something similar to what I'm about to say. And he said this, tell me what you believe about the virgin birth. I'll tell you what you believe about Jesus. And he recognized that the virgin birth, interestingly, had become a major test case for supernatural affirmation and it had become a major divide between conservative evangelical theology and modernistic liberal theology. John, by the way, coined the word Antichrist. We don't find the word appearing anywhere in any literature up until the time of his writing First and Second John. Interestingly, the word does not occur in the book of Revelation, though I think the Antichrist is there. He's called the beast in Revelation chapter 13. 
But Paul calls him the man of sin in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. John refers to him by the name, the designation Antichrist in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 4, and here in second, and also in 2 John verse 7. But here he speaks of the spirit of the Antichrist. And though the word Antichrist, Antichristos, can sometimes mean in the place of Christ, here it's very clear that John has teaching in mind, and he is speaking of those who are against Christ, those who oppose Christ. And he says, look, you heard he was coming, and he is, but already his devilish spirits are active in the world. And here's the deal, guys and gals. If they were active in the first century, you can expect them also to be active in the 21st century as well. And just because someone says that they follow Jesus, that they trust Jesus, that they love Jesus, doesn't mean that they necessarily have the biblical Jesus in view. I, Howard Marshall, wonderful New Testament scholar, says it well. If a person claims to believe in Jesus, it is proper to ask, is your Jesus the real Jesus. I've said this all of my years of teaching. Give me 15 minutes with you. Let me ask you some basic questions about Christology that you are required to answer, and I guarantee you I can pinpoint about 90 to 95% of the rest of your theology. I can do it. Because what you believe about Jesus will determine what you believe about God, what you believe about the Bible, what you believe about sinful humanity, what you believe about salvation, what you believe about the Holy Spirit, and even what you believe about the church and eschatology, it all radiates from Jesus. And so the Bible asks the question, are you confessing the true Jesus? Number three, are you trusting in the greater spirit? Look at what he writes there in verse 4, little children. You are from God, and you have overcome in an abiding way them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We know this verse. It's one of those precious promises that you find in the Bible, and yet it is cloaked in what I like to call divine irony. You see, the one who believes in Jesus and the one who follows after Jesus has a divine, ironic promise of victory. Think about it. John points out very clearly that you and I have the opposition of Satan. We have a world system that assaults us every day. We have false teachers that want to seduce us. We have faulty worldviews that attempt to confuse us. We have our own sinfulness that yearns to enslave us. And yet the Bible says they are all divinely ordained to fail. Why? Because of the glorious truth of verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In other words, we have a champion. We have a victor. We have a, a source of powers that all of these enemies of hell combined are no match for. Do you notice how he began verse 4 again with a word of tenderness, little children? But interestingly, in the original text, the verse doesn't begin with little children. Actually, the phrase, you are of God, is fronted for emphasis and for intensity. In fact, literally, he says, you yourselves are of God, little children, and you have overcome in an abiding, settled fashion. And how did you obtain that victory? By the greater spirit that resides in you, the Holy Spirit that you received the moment of your conversion. One more time, I love our charismatic brothers. 
I'm grateful for our Pentecostal friends, but any teaching of a second blessing whereby you receive the Holy Spirit after your conversion is simply wrong. It is false. It will not stand up under the teaching of the Word of God. You got all of the Spirit the moment that you were converted. Now, through sanctification, that Holy Spirit is getting more of you, but you don't need more of Jesus. You don't need more of the Holy Spirit. You got it all. In its fullness, the moment that you put your faith and trust in Christ and you were regenerated and made brand new by the Spirit of God. Is the world strong? Yes. But the Bible says our God is infinitely stronger. Are false prophets wise? Yes. But our God is infinitely wiser. Is Satan in one sense great? Yes, he is. But our God is infinitely greater than he. And the one who is infinitely greater and stronger is now in you and in you forever. Have you ever thought about the fact that God being God can live anywhere that God wants to live? And yet amazingly, he has chosen to reside inside of you and inside of me. John Piper, in trying to make this very practical, says, let me apply this in a twofold manner because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world and the one who is in you came as a grace gift made possible by the atoning work of Christ. He says, number one, do not take credit for your listening ear or your confessing heart or your correct view of Christ. Give credit to the Spirit who is in you and give God the glory. Secondly, when you are threatened by any deception or uh, of the evil one, any temptation, discouragement, anxiety, cowardice, remind yourselves that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Almighty God abides in you. So trust him. For this is the victory that overcomes the world, even your faith in the sovereign indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Are you trusting in the greater spirit? Finally, are you listening to the right teachers? John brings his teaching to a close by drawing a contrast, and at first blush, his words sound almost arrogant. Verse 5, they, these false teachers, these antichrists, are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Now, here's the almost arrogant statement. Whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, you will know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What's he trying to say here? He's simply saying this. You should trust those who were with him. You should trust those who were the eyewitnesses of all that he did. You don't need to put your faith and trust in a theological Johnny-come-lately. You need to put your faith and trust in those who were there and saw it all. You say, well, Danny, we're 2,000 years removed from the apostles. How in the world do we do that? I love the answer given by our good friend, Thabiti Ayambwele. He says, and I quote, how do we engage the apostles who've been dead for almost 2,000 years through a certain kind of preaching. The preaching that takes the apostles' words, explains their words, and apply their words is the kind of preaching that will enable us to listen to them today. We call this 
expositional preaching because it exposes what the apostles have written and the meaning and application of their words. And by the way, without being ugly, there's no such thing as a prosperity gospel preacher who is an expository preacher. That is an oxymoron. They don't have a clue about how to expound the text of Scripture book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word, because if they did, they'd have to give up their heretical teaching. No. Expository preaching exposes what the apostles have written and the meaning and application of their words. When you listen to the Word of God expositionally preached, you are listening to the apostles. And ultimately, you are listening to God Himself. That phrase that ends verse 6, the spirit of error, is an interesting phrase. It has the idea of wandering away from the truth. You see, false teachers and false prophets, uh, they hang around the truth for a while, but they, they don't stay there. Uh, they wander away. And again and again and again, it comes back to what did Jesus say and what do you believe about Jesus. You see, the Bible says He's God, but they wander away and deny His eternal deity. The Bible says He's sinless, but they wander away and say He sinned, or at least, as some evangelicals are saying today, He committed errors. The Bible says He did miracles. They wander away and say these are myths, these are fables. The Bible says He's the only Savior, but they wander away and say, no, He is simply a Savior for some. The Bible says He died on the cross as a penal substitute for our sins, but they wander away and they deny the doctrine of penal substitution and uh, raise a horrible caricature of our loving Heavenly Father as some type of divine monster. The Bible says He rose bodily from the dead, but they wander away and say the disciples imagined that He did. The Bible says He ascended into heaven as Lord, and they wander away and say just another myth. The Bible says He's coming again. They wander away and say again just another myth. And the Bible says He will judge us all, and they wander away and say God is love. And eventually all will be saved. In the end, they teach that love wins. And the Bible does say that the way of Jesus is the way of sacrifice and service. But they wander away and say that God wants you prosperous, happy, self-fulfilled. God wants you to make much of you. Martin Luther, the wonderful reformer, said it so very well, and I close. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition... Every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking. I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing that I am. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. No, there is a battle raging, and good soldiers of Christ will stand for that which is true and that which is right. We will test the spirits. We will confess Jesus as Lord. We will trust the Spirit who is within, and we will forever stay last to the infallible and the inerrant Word of God. This is our strength. This is our safety. Indeed, it's our salvation. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this warning. Uh, It's not an easy text to preach because it's much easier to speak about love and grace and mercy and kindness. And yet I would say today that the loving, gracious, merciful, kind thing to do is to exalt truth and expose, expose error. Uh, to ex- uh, exalt that which is right and expose that which is a lie. Uh, because, Lord, unfortunately, there are many liars, deceivers, those with the spirit of Antichrist out there preaching another Jesus, preaching another gospel, and being led by a different spirit. And so, Lord, with conviction and courage, grace and compassion, may we indeed test the spirits, recognizing they're not all from God. And may we be faithful to stay lashed to the only trustworthy source we have, not a man, not a woman, not a prophet, not a pen, but the Word of God. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, We hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www dot s-e-b-t-s dot e-d-u we cover your prayers and trust that god will bless every good work you do for his glory thank you for joining us in our chapel services